God changes your life, changes your thoughts, changes your desires, and changes your interests, and it comes out of God's Word. It's really learning to know God out of His Word. You're listening to the Faith Matters Podcast with Steve McKinley. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of the Faith Matters Podcast. Uh, We have a great show. I don't know if I should call it a show, but uh, we have some great content lined up for you today, and that's because uh, I'm excited to have this guest with us. We have with us today Tom Baker. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks, thanks, Stephen, for having me come and to speak on your show today. I appreciate it. And uh, Tom is uh, is our our expert, uh, providing ex- expert testimony for us today for this topic, and and this is something I've been looking at forward to for quite a while. And uh, we're we're going to be talking about Old Testament history and specifically what is the historical evidence for Old Testament history. So this is really for uh, just about anybody. I think everybody has questions about the historicity of the Bible. Uh, It may be you do. Maybe you're a total unbeliever. Maybe you think the Bible is a book of fairy tales. Well, stick around. We're going to provide a lot of content here that might help you out with that. But Tom, why don't we just start out and tell us about your background, what brought you up to this point? Well, um, uh, I was uh, saved uh, about going on 15, 16 years ago, and from a Roman Catholic background, and after I trusted the Lord as my saviour, I started, of course, have a great interest in the Bible and the things of the Bible, and then over the years, I had a very strong uh, interest in historical things and so after a few years I decided to start studying archaeology and for the last four years I've been studying archaeology up in Trinity College in Dublin. I'm on my last year of my degree, I'm just working on my dissertation this year then I'll be finished up. Mm. Hopefully I may go into the future to do uh, some uh, a master's degree in biblical archaeology but I've just had a strong interest in the field of history and archaeology, especially, not surprisingly, relating to the archaeology and history of the Bible. Mm. And so, <laughs> basically, it's a natural progression. You know, I like our, uh, historical subjects, archaeology, and so I just enjoy so, it. So, basically, what you're telling us, <clears throat> Tom, what, what you're telling us is that you don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I know, I do. <laughs> Ah, no, it's just, um, I've been, like I said, I'm currently also working on YouTube videos as well to highlight the fact that there is evidence out there to support the scriptures and to support what the Bible says. Because most people today honestly think that there is no evidence out there to prove what the Bible teaches. If you watch your average Discovery Channel or History Channel documentary, they give you the impression that there is no evidence out there to support what the Bible teaches. So right, right. Uh, I just want people to know that there is evidence out there, some direct evidence, mm-hmm. some indirect evidence. So, No, in, in reality, Tom is, uh, is uh, very capable. And uh, as I said before, he, he's the expert here and uh, uh, he's, he's living in this. I mean, this is his passion and his interest. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of devoting himself to this. And so, Tom, we're really glad to have you on today. And uh, over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about three big Old Testament events. 
And uh, what are they, Tom? Well, this week we're going to be dealing with uh, the historicity or the historical reliability of the patriarchs. In other words, the patriarchs is just a big fancy word to describe the history of the lives of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which encompasses some mostly the Bronze Age period of history. Then we're going to next week look at some of the evidence for the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So did the Exodus occur like the Bible teaches, and is there evidence to back up the historicity of the Exodus account found in the Old Testament? And then we are going to deal with the location of Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. Now, in among, even among Christian circles, there is an awful lot of controversy as regards to the location of Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. Where is it? And so this is going to be what we're going to deal with over the next couple of weeks. So. Right. And lately, um, I mean, when I say lately, over the past many years, there there have just been more and more stuff coming to light yeah. from archaeology and history. Yeah that uh, the field of biblical archaeology and, and the history of these things is quite an exciting and rapidly developing field, right? Oh, yeah, it is. There's a, they're like, just take, for instance, like um, people assume that they've discovered all that they're going to discover. But in the Holy Land, for instance, and Israel is a small country, it's like even smaller than the country of Ireland is, and that's saying something. The estimate is is that about 90% of the archaeological sites and places in just Israel have yet to be discovered mm, and yeah. yet to be excavated. So, so we're only, yeah. we've only scratched the surface so far, but, but it's amazing that uh, as little as we've found, probably less than 10%, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as little as we found, there are points of identity with things in the Bible. So it leaves you wondering what's out there that we haven't found yet. So quite exciting stuff. And I do want to say that uh, um, at the end of March, this will be in three weeks from now, uh, Tom is going to take your questions. And so we're hoping to have some viewer questions. I'm sure you're sitting there probably wondering, yeah, but what about and uh, save those actually put those in the comments below this video and uh, ask Tom whatever you want regarding Old Testament history you know are there you know I mean if these are legitimate reasonable questions not silly questions but uh, we're going to devote um, that whole episode here in three weeks to viewer questions and if we don't have any you know we'll have our own topic but uh, we, we want you to be able to get your word in um, and get your questions answered. So take note of that. Well, uh, Tom, we'll kick off the uh, uh, the topic here of the patriarchs and and really just ask, um, you know, why is it important? Why, why should we care um, about whether the patriarch stories are true? Who, who cares if uh, Abraham was a real man and if he went to Canaan and these things? Why does it matter? Well, the first reason why... <clears throat> matters is because in the New Testament Jesus Christ our Savior very clearly declared that he believed that Abraham Isaac and Jacob the patriarchs were historical characters and individuals he didn't say oh they were made up or they were allegory or they were myths or they're fables and that's what a lot of modern uh, scholars even supposedly Christian scholars claim that they, they were just a series of 
fables or allegories to explain certain things, whether the foundation of this city or why they're, why Canaan was so important. But in passages, say, like in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus declares without any doubt that Abraham was an historical individual, not made up. Not an old fa fable or fairy tale. So that's crucially important, mm. right? I mean, if Jesus uh, gave validity to fables and fairy tales, what does that say about the person of Jesus? Exactly. Uh, but the the Bible makes some big claims about who Jesus is. You know, Jesus himself, we've uh, dealt with in past episode um, episodes, claimed to be God. And uh, so there's a lot writing on this topic. Yeah, there is. And even to add, add this in, uh, if you look at the beginning of Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew starts off by declaring that Jesus came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their mm. sons, and so on and so forth. So the Bible literally is basing the life of, G of Jesus upon the fact that they existed. Mm. But yet, if you claim, well, they didn't exist, well, then that basically is implying that what Jesus said is untrue and that he cannot be relied upon. And Jesus isn't uh, physically a, uh, who he is, who he said he was, you know, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. Well, David was later, but uh, uh, but yeah, Matthew's genealogy is is false then yeah. and un unreliable. Yeah, and so so it's basically an attack upon not just the, the book of Genesis or the Old Testament, but it's also indirectly an attack upon the New Testament narrative about who Jesus is and what he did. Because if you can't trust him in one area, then why should you trust him in the other areas? Right. And, and when you when you actually sit down, it takes a little while, but when you sit down and read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you do get the sense that this is real history. And the, the, the messages of these books is tied up in the history. Yeah. So it's not just like teaching, but it's it's actual events that God was working through the, the people of... Uh, you know, the patriarchal families and then later Israel and yeah. ultimately Jesus Christ. So the, the patriarchs have to be rooted in history and ultimately they give us Jesus Christ who gives us salvation. Yeah. So very, very significant. Um, you know, the Bible has always been, been taken to be true um, uh, among the general populace. Yeah. But in the mid-1600s, there was a man by the name of Spinoza. I think I believe he was a Dutch um, uh, theologian, or, or f maybe not theologian, but philosopher. And I think he was the first person to put academic weight behind um, questioning the historicity of the books of Moses. Mm. And uh, he said that, uh, you know, they, they just don't live up to the modern sciences, <clears throat> the history, the culture, and those things. And then he was followed in the mid or late 1800s uh, by a man named Wellhausen. Mm -hmm. And so there have been very serious attacks out there for several hundred years now on the historicity of, of the early books of the Bible and uh, specifically the, the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And Tom, you know, did they really exist? What evidence is there out there? Is there any evidence for what were basically 
sheep herders yeah. you know, 4,000 years ago. Is there any evidence for them? Well, that's a good point you bring <laughs> up about the fact that they were sheep herders. They were basically pastoral nomads. We would call them Bedouin today. And the thing is, if you think about it, a Bedouin doesn't really live in a, in a permanent settlement. They're moving about with their flocks, with their herds from here to there where they need to go. And if you try to even prove that Bedouin existed today, it would be very hard to, because they can take their tents, they can take their animals, they can take their property, and therefore, maybe a hundred years down the line, you would be hard-pressed to prove they had ever been there. Right. Because there wouldn't be no physical evidence. They are very hard people to track down, because they leave little evidence behind them. Mm. And so, and consider the fact that this, we're talking about a period of close to 4,000 years ago. Yeah. You know, think of it this way, you know, if you had something, you know, if you say you had uh, something from 100 years ago, it's very easy to lose that over time, even if mm -hmm. you don't intend to lose it. So if you have something that's 4,000 years ago that has gone through just natural wear and tear and um, disasters and war and things like that, or maybe it's been melted down or used for another purpose, you know, there would be very little evidence remaining. And what people have to realise is, is that basically archaeology, like the things that we find, is basically durable rubbish. Mm -hmm. You know, you see stuff the, that people threw away. Yeah, yeah. you see the <laughs> temples, like the, the magnificent ruins, like that's in essence a durable rubbish. It's just the leftovers from another society that has that has been able to survive millennia of abuse mm -hmm. and neglect and just being thrown away. And you know, we have to consider that. You know, we're sifting through other people's rubbish. Oh, yeah. You know, and you imagine it in a thousand years of time, what people are going to think of us based on what we have left over from our oh, lives. So I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to know yeah. so much garbage that our culture generates today. Yeah. But you can learn a lot by going through people's rubbish, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, you can. Uh, I think that's one of the things maybe a private detective would do, would go through somebody's rubbish and look for mail and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. And that is true. Like, um, you see, you see what the rem the remnants of a past civilization's rubbish it does tell us an awful lot about the people who lived then, and I think that's the main importance of biblical archaeology. And you were talking about uh, Spinoza and um, uh, well, I think it was yeah, Wellhausen, yeah. yeah. And the field of biblical archaeology actually started up in the 19th century as a reaction to more liberal views regarding the Bible. Mm. And so people thought that they could prove the Bible true through archaeology. Though the thing is, the Bible tells us very clearly that, you know, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Mm -hmm. And so... <clears throat> The idea of the Bible needing to be proven to be true, I believe, is wrong. The right. Bible is a, a book that is self-validating. In other words, it proves itself to right. be right. Yeah. And so I think it was a good reaction, but sometimes I think it was an overreaction mm. because they thought, well, if we can't find evidence in the ground, that therefore means, you know, can we trust it? Mm. But the thing is, always remember the old saying, Absence of evidence does not equal uh, evidence of absence. Right. Great. You know, just because you don't have 
evidence of something does not mean it didn't happen. Yeah. And so we have to remember that. And so, so we're not yeah. sitting here making the claim yeah. that uh, that that we believe the Bible because there's archaeological evidence out there, right? You're not going to get that from us over the next yeah. four weeks. Um, like like you said, Tom, we accept the Bible by faith, yeah. and it's not like um, oh, there's not enough evidence out there, so I just don't know if I can believe this part of the yeah. Bible. Yeah. Probably the strongest evidence that you've already mentioned is. Jesus believed it, yeah, and it comes down to do we trust Jesus yeah. or not? Yeah. So that's it, it, it's uh, it comes down to a matter of it still comes down to a matter of faith. Yeah. And I, but, but what role does it play then, archaeology, if it doesn't prove our faith? Where, where does it fall into place? Well, the important about take for instance my own testimony. You know, I believed the Bible was true by faith before I knew about any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I believed it before I knew anything about archaeology. Yeah. And but all I've seen from studying the field of biblical archaeology is that it affirms your faith. It helps strengthen you. I believed mm -hmm. it before I knew about this stuff, but it has encouraged me. But to answer your question as to what the, then the value of biblical archaeology is, it helps us to understand biblical types. Now, I believe it has an apologetic value. It can help to, say, answer people's questions or to defend the faith. But its main purpose is, is to show what things, what life was like, say, during the times of the patriarchs. Now, of course, you know, they were similar to us in many ways in what they in how what they did and so on. But there was a lot of things that were different. So firstly it helps us to understand how they lived their lives, mm -hmm. where they lived, things like what did they eat, how did they cook, how did they travel, how did they say fight their wars, how did they go about making laws. So you learn about the physical culture of the Bible. You learn about who they were, basically, how they lived. So it's basically like putting more and more paint on the tapestry. Yeah. We're getting a richer and richer picture of biblical times. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. It helps you to understand better the times that the Bible were talking about. Hmm. It opens mm -hmm. your eyes up to those things. Yeah. It also helps to show, and, uh, and it does help to back up, say, and the Bible talks about certain events, like, for instance, later on, the destruction of um, Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Mm -hmm. There is evidence there that backs up that that happened. Mm, yeah, so it confirms that fact. Yeah, And as well, it's important because it also helps to affirm the locations of the Bible. So you see that the Bible, especially like in the book of Genesis, you read it and there's a list of different cities and towns and places. What archaeology helps to do is to show that those places did exist. There were legitimate towns and cities in the places that the Bible mentions. So it shows that it's accurate also in its geography. Now, there are other religious books that claim to speak about geography and places, but there's no way to back it up no historical evidence it, exactly but that the bible says jerusalem is here guess what jerusalem is there the city of shechem is here guess what shechem is there I am always fascinated when I read both the Old Testaments and the New Testament, how many names there actually are of places and people. Yeah. And then um, that's pretty bold if you're if you're coming up with 
uh, fables and fairy tales yeah. to give specific names of places and people. And then yeah. we can go back in history. In many in many cases, we can say, okay, were these actual places and people? And what we find is we have a lot of evidence for that yeah. sort of thing. There is, yeah, wonderful. And what you what and the thing is as well, if you were going to say forge something, you know, it's very easy to make a forgery say of a banknote or something and make the main details accurate but oftentimes where forgers get caught out is in the small details the tiny details mm, yeah. but the thing is the bible if it, it's not just accurate in what it says historically in the major things you it's also being proven to be true in the, in the minor details, which are much harder to forge. Mm, because a yeah. lot of people, especially with the patriarchs, they claim that the narrative basically didn't come about until, like, some claim that this shows you just a variation among scholars. Some say the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, was created by the Jews in the 7th or the 6th or the 5th century. So they don't even agree entirely on that. Much, much later yeah. than conservative scholars would say yeah and the reason they say that is basically to claim that the jews as a new and up-and-coming kingdom wanted to make themselves more authentic more respectable amongst their peers and neighbors and so what you see is is that modern scholarship basically approaches the patriarchs as if oh it was a fairy tale created to give the jews legitimacy as a nation amongst more important nations who are around them but we i believe that that's untrue that's based upon a lack of faith in what the scriptures teach because yeah and that that would have to um <clears throat> cause some embarrassment for christians i would think that we're talking about hundreds of years ago when these ideas first came to light um, and public opinion started to change uh, would cause some embarrass embarrassment and yeah. maybe cause people to question their faith. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. What can we say uh, about the patriarchs as far as the the evidence goes? Well, I mean, how would you, in the face of a of a skeptical scholar, what in the world would you say? Well, first off, you know, like I said before, you know. Uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence you know a lot of people will throw the accusation at especially the patriarchal period and say therefore if there's not uh, say some relic with the name Abraham was here or Isaac was here or that you know and they claim they didn't exist but what you see is that in the archaeological record there is much indirect evidence that points to the reliability of the patriarch the account mm. of the patriarch so yeah. you know i wish there was something where we found that would say i abraham the hebrew was here in canaan doing this at this time that would be great yeah i mean outside yeah. of the of course the biblical record itself yeah we do have that but yeah yeah of course yeah yeah but um there is other more indirect pieces of evidence that do help up to back up the reliability of what the scriptures teach and so mm. for instance like you have during that period um the idea of um, names, certain names. You may say, well, what's in a name? Names are not important. They're not interesting. Well, you see in Genesis, you have names like Abraham, the original name of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You have Esau and, and Ishmael and that. And you say, well, what's in the name? You know, who cares? 
Well, a name is important because sometimes names will come into fashion and go out of fashion. You know, there are certain names that you would you say have used 2,000 years ago during the Roman period. Like, you would have names like Augustus or Claudius or Julius or that. I think I can see where you're going yeah. with this. <laughs> and, you know, how many t people today name their children, say, Augustus or Claudius or Julius? Now, there might be yeah. some people who do that. But the thing is, in the ancient world, there were trends just as they are now. And so what you see is in, say, tablets like clay tablets, some rather in, in and of themselves, rather dry sort of records. In, uh, like there's clay tablets found in Syria. Now, Syria, of course, is in northern, northern Mesopotamia. And if you're wondering where on earth is Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia is just a big fancy name for the land between the two rivers. That's the Euphrates in the west, the T T Tigris in the east. Now, in that area, there, was there were cities like Ebla and Mari. And as any culture did, they had um, uh, record keeping. And what they would do is they would have these clay tablets. So they didn't have iPhones or paper as we do. They had papyrus, but that wasn't as common. So what they would do is they would write in administrative records. And, of course, they would do things like write down the names of people. So-and-so did this, so-and-so did this. They're actually not as, in and of themselves, they're quite dry subjects. You know, they're basically administrative records. But you see these common names being used and brought up, like Abraham, like Isaac, like, say, Dan, like Ishmael. Or... And so it shows you that these tablets, which came from roughly the time period of the patriarchs, helps to back up their historicity. Because if you were getting these ancient documents and he never mentioned these names, you start to wonder, well, that's a bit odd. You know, but like being in Ireland and, you know, most people today would say, well, what's a popular name in Ireland? Well, Patrick mm. or Mary. Yes. But the fact is, you know, the same was true back then. There were popular names that were heard that were used quite a lot. But then over time, they just sort of die out as far as they were unfashionable. Hmm. And so little things like that, that may seem like a small thing, but it's actually quite significant when you look at it. And the fact that these tablets help to confirm these things helps to show little details like that are quite accurate. Wow, interesting. So, okay, so just, and as well, you know, talking about things that back up the historicity of the patriarchs, one of those things is legal customs and legal regulations. Now you say, oh, the law is boring. And, you know, the law, you know, laws can be a bit boring. But what you see is, is that they're important because laws, just like with names, can also change. Mm. You know, mm. there were laws that, say, were in place here in Ireland, say, 500 years ago, that we've gotten rid of. Why is that? Because situations change. Hmm. And there's laws that are in place today that weren't in place then because things have changed. And so what you see is, is in the book of Genesis, it talks about certain legal customs that prove indirectly that Genesis was not written in the 7th or the 6th or the 5th century BC. And you may say, well, well why is that? How do we know that? 
Well, for instance, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is dying and he pronounces his blessings upon his sons, he tells his sons that he's going to give them all an equal share of the inheritance. Now, that sounds very fair and even-handed. But what you find out is in that period of the patriarchs, there were international laws that were put in place that regulated things like inheritance laws. So there were even governmental laws in place to impose equal inheritances on children. And one of them is a set of laws called the Liber Ishtar laws. They're from the 19th century BC, which states that the sons receive an equal share of the inheritance. Now, that sounds very dull and boring, but really what you see is, is that later on in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, it talks about how that in circa 1450, uh, about that period, what you find is, is that the law, that custom had changed. And that the firstborn son received a double portion of the inheritance. Now mm-hmm. you say, well, what's the significance? Well, it shows you things had changed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that was after like close to 400 years. Huh. And that's a very minor sort of detail. It's, it, you, you almost pass it over. But the Bible is making it clear. Things had changed. Kind of what you're you're telling us here is that um, it's not as easy as you would think to fabricate a historical document. Mm-hmm. Uh, people would have had to have intimate knowledge from hun- many, many hundreds of years prior exactly. to, to make it look authentic. They just couldn't have done it. Yeah, exactly. It would just be nigh on impossible, say, for a Jew in the 7th or the 6th or the 5th century to then go back to legal customs, which were like nearly of well over a millennium old, and be accurate. You know, mm. you tried to be able to find laws from a thousand years ago. You know, that would be nigh on impossible. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it just keeps on going. There's also other laws, like in the same Liber Ishtar laws, which make mention of the practice that... That of the slave son, now, now follow here, the slave son of a slave wife could not legally receive any of his father's inheritance once he was freed. Now, you know, we look at that, oh, slave wife, slave sons, that sounds like a very, you know, uncomfortable thing for us to talk about. But that was common. It was a common practice for a man who didn't have any children to take one of his slaves a female slave, marry them, make them a wife, and then have a son through that union. You know, that sounds mm-hmm. odd to us, but that's what mm-hmm. they did. That was social customs. That was normal in those days. You Con- know. Concubines, right? Is that yeah, what that would be? exactly. Yeah, exactly. But this goes along very accurately, I believe, with what happens in Genesis chapter 21. Mm-hmm. when With the story of Abraham setting Hagar and Ishmael free. Now, we often look at that and think, oh, that was very cruel that, you know... Just kicked her out. Kicked her out. But actually what happened there, I believe, was not an act of cruelty. It was Abraham freeing his wife and freeing his son and giving them their liberty. Because even though he was married to Hagar and his son was Ishmael, they were still slaves. 
Hmm. You see, he wasn't being cruel to them. He was letting them go. Now, I believe personally, she just got lost. Hmm. It doesn't say that Abraham was in any way cruel, but she just wandered off, got lost in the desert. The Lord helped her. Hmm. But Mm -hmm. this is what we see, and that was a common law in those days. And you may say, why did Hagar, why why was Hagar and Ishmael kicked out? No, they weren't kicked out. They were freed, I should say. But it was because Isaac was going to come along. And Isaac was the chosen son. And that he would receive the inheritance. But once Hagar and Ishmael had been freed, legally speaking, there was no requirement for them to receive that inheritance. That was for Isaac to receive. And so that's another sort of major thing that would be very hard later on to fabricate or even to know about because that was centuries old by the time of the 7th or the 6th or the 5th century. Wow, interesting. Uh, (laughs) uh, You could say another one in another set of tablets called the Nuzai tablets. They also shed light on the idea, and this is even weirder to us today, there was the idea in Mesopotamia that once a man was married to a, a, a woman, he could make her legally his sister and that she would also then become uh, you know she would also then be legally related to him and he would be her brother now that sounds very odd why would you marry a woman that then legally very strange yeah i know but that's yeah. what they did huh. but the nazi tablets they're dated to about circa 1500 bc talk about this idea and like i said it's hmm. really weird to us but it yeah. wasn't to them which may explain why Abraham and Sarah, remember when they went down into Egypt? And what did Abraham say to the Egyptians? Oh, she's my sister. Yeah. Now, the Bible does tell us that he, that Abraham, that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was, I think if I remember, her sister. sister or yeah. yeah, which was... Which was another, that's a whole other topic to talk about that we can't go into. But later on, you see Isaac and Rebecca sort of used the same scheme. But they were not sister or brother in any way, shape or form. But they both claimed to be sister and brother. And why that seems to have been the case is is they were using a legal, you could say, uh, technicality to say, oh, well, yeah, she's my sister, not my wife, which is sort of technically true. Legally speaking, that's probably mm. what they would have done. Okay. But he yeah. sort of omits the other part that they were married. And many, many hundreds of years later, or a thousand years later, they, they never would have yeah. even come into their mind yeah. To, yeah. to come up with a scheme like yeah. that. That was old hat by that point, very oh, old yeah. hat, you know. Uh, and so you see wow. differences like that. Another interesting um, element in the story of the patriarchs is, remember when Jacob flees from his uncle Laban to go Mm -hmm. back to Canaan? And remember, what is it Rachel does before they leave? Well, the Bible tells us she steals the idols of her dad Laban. And so they, they run off and Laban all of a sudden loses it. And he decides, okay, 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 I've got to chase them down. Well, firstly, he was upset that Jacob ran away and sneakily when he didn't know. But when they reach Jacob, Laban is very angry because his idols have been taken away. And they weren't just any older. And now we think of an idol as a big, massive thing in a temple. But there were also little idols in the Hebrew called teraphim. These were small household gods. Hmm. 
And at that time, there was a law that stated that if a person physically possessed the teraphim of a household, then they, by legal right, had all power to everything that was owned in that household. Hmm. So when you put that together, what Rachel, I think, was doing was, is she took the household gods of Laban. Why? So that her husband, Jacob, would then have legal power to everything that was Laban's. Oh, okay. And so that shows why Laban was furious and he wanted to desperately find them because if he did not own those little house, if he didn't have them in his hand, Rachel would come back later and say, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, and say, oh, these are this household and all of Laban's things are actually mine because I own the stuff. Mm. I own the wow, tariff. That, that sheds a lot of light on that story. Yeah. You know, because, you know, otherwise you wonder why was Laban so furious? Why then did he look for little household gods? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it hard seems, to understand some of those things. Yeah. Because they're so far distantly removed wow. from the times. Interesting. You also have, say, other things that are very interesting, like um, the idea of, the Bible tells us of during the famine that took place in the time of Jacob, and when he sends his sons back up and down to Egypt to get food. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a common practice at that time, because you see in Egypt, there's actually a tomb painting in, called the, in Beni Hassan, where an important Egyptian official decorated one of the walls of his tombs with images of people coming down into Egypt to trade. And on one of the particular scenes on this tomb painting, what we see is is that there's a group of Asiatics. Now, that's what the Egyptians called people from Canaan or from to the northeast of uh, Egypt. And in this scene, you see a group of Asiatics traveling down from the land of Canaan. Remember, that's where Jacob was living and with his family. And they were coming down to trade. They were bringing certain things with them. And these group of Asiatics also had their families. So they had their donkeys, they had their wives, they had their goods. Now, some people say, oh, is that evidence of Jacob and his family coming down into Egypt? No. Not necessarily, no. No, no. no. (laughs) But what it shows is, it would be nice, no, if it had, this is Jacob and his family, but it doesn't claim that. Right. But what it shows is that the practice of going down into Egypt at that time, say for trade or to buy stuff, was common Hmm. at that period. So the things in those, what we call the patriarchal narratives, they just fit right into the time period naturally. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And wow. so, so those are some like little things like that. Like I said, these are indirect pieces of evidence. They're not something that you would automatically think think of, but these are small details that would be very, very, very hard to fake centuries mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. In fact, even relating to Joseph, you know, Joseph was sold by his brothers to to um, a group of Ishmaelites who were going down into Egypt. And if I remember correctly, the sum was 20 shekels he was sold for. Now, you may say, well, okay, they were buying and selling slaves. That was common at the time. You know, we don't approve of that today, but that was what was done. But interestingly, in the period of about the 7th, the 6th and the 5th century, the price of a slave had actually gone up. 
Mm. Now, you know, we complain about mm. things like inflation today, but there was inflation in the ancient world. Huh. And if I remember correctly, the price was about 90 shekels for a slave. So it's gone from 20 to 90. Wow. Now, that's something that you would have to n be living in that time to know. Because yeah. let's be honest, you know, how would, how would we know the price of inflation a thousand years ago? Right. It's hard to keep up with it today, yeah. the price of things going up. Yeah, but it, it did happen. It would take very careful research. <laughs> exactly. You, you, for us, even in, and in those days, they didn't keep records the same as we do today, right? Well, they did keep records, but they simply didn't survive. Yeah. In fact, the interesting note is you may say, well, how do we have clay tablets and that? Well, firstly, papyrus is like paper. You know, the only place that survives is in a hot, dry climate like Egypt. Otherwise, if it's in even a relatively cooler, damper place, it just rots away. Same with things like vellum and that. But I was talking about those tablets, and the reason why they survived was is they were originally made in clay, but they weren't originally designed to survive. They were something you could, you know, make damp and then mold and use again. So they were meant to be reused. You keep them as long as you need them, you get rid of them. You do the same thing today. But because ancient cities were often destroyed by fire in war and a disaster, you know what happened to those tablets? They literally baked. Oh. And so they became nearly nigh on indestructible. Hmm. That wasn't intended. They didn't intend to do that. And, and would you say that the the records that we have are, are primarily um, uh, official records or documents? These aren't like the common people who are scratching a note down yeah. on a yeah, post-it yeah. note or something like oh, that. Yeah. You just don't have that sort of thing. These are uh, official records yeah. that we yeah. have. Like I said, you know, most of these records are legal documents, they're inventories, they're mm. tax receipts, you know, they're very dull and they might talk about this guy gave this amount of sheep or this amount of grain. It's very dry reading. Now, there are some cases of ancient poetry and ancient songs and that, but really that just comes down to probably a matter of literacy and how whether people could read or write now you know even the necessity of writing yeah. they just didn't have the yeah. the need maybe yeah. that we think we do today but. yeah i think reading and writing was more of an elite <clears throat> skill hmm. now we don't know exactly how many people were able to read and write in the ancient world there's guesses which are probably true you know but, you know, it was just not a practicality. It wasn't necessary all of the time. Right. But they, they did have post-it notes and that too in their own particular little ways. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. But, like yeah. This is a pottery and things yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, they, they did this much the same thing as we did. So, you know, we've got to consider that the world was, it's, the ancient world was a set, the same in a lot of ways, but also very different too. And, you know, that disconnect makes it hard for us to understand some of those things. Uh, yeah. And so I was just thinking another particularly interesting point, and this shows you, show it might be a curiosity to those who are watching and listen, listening, comes down to the matter of camels. Camels, yes, okay. Camels, yeah, you know, they're yeah. one hump or two. But you, camels, now you may say, well, what does a camel have to do with the Old Testament narrative? And you may say, yeah, I know that, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had camels. It tells us they did and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. But many scholars and critics of the Bible, I should say, 
have used camels as a means to try to attack the authenticity of the Bible. And you may say, well, how can you use a camel to do that? That sounds strange. Well, when I learned about this the first time, it, it just made me chuckle. But the common belief for a long time has been that camels, the, the dromedary camel, now the dromedary camel is basically the one-humped camel. So, you know, you go to the Middle East today, you see camels that have one hump. They're dromedaries. Mm -hmm. And so archaeologists and scholars say that the dromedary, which seemingly was domesticated to a large degree in Arabia in about the 12th century BC. And so you may say, well, what's the point? Who cares about camels? Well, they have attacked the Bible by claiming, well, the camel was not domesticated until long after the time of the patriarchs. But the Genesis account tells us that they had camels. So they say, well, the Bible says this, but we all know that dromedaries were not domesticated to this point. So the ergo, you know, it's not reliable. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, that was used as an attack. It still is in some regards. But what needs to be remembered is, though, is there are two types of camels. There's the dromedary. And there's also what we know as the Bactrian camel, the two-hump oh, variety. Yeah, the two-hump yeah. variety. Yeah. And so you may say, well, well, the point being, well, they have found from the archaeological record, there was this little clay cylinder seal. Now, you may say, what on earth is a cylinder seal? Well, have you ever seen like in from like the medieval period or that time where you would have, say, a king or a ruler and he had a document that needed to be secured? And so they'd put in an envelope. But what they would do is they get a ring, they get wax and they put their ring in the wax and it would be an impression. Mm -hmm. So only maybe one or two people would have that impression. So you couldn't really fake it. They do the same thing in the ancient world. They would use rings. They'd also use scarabs in Egypt. You know, you see scarabs to do the same thing. Also, they would use little cylinder seals. So they'd get the clay and they'd roll it across the wet clay and they'd leave an image. They found in Syria a little cylinder seal. And on the seal, it has depictions of two humped camels, Bactrian camels, with people on top of them. Which, oh, okay. which date to about circa about the 18th century BC. So well within the period oh. of the patriarchs. So, so, if, so if somebody's going to use that argument, you really have to ask them, what kind of camel are you talking about yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Now, to just mm. add as well, you know, just because there is no real physical remains of dromedaries left, doesn't necessarily disprove that there weren't any. Like I said, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. There could well be. But you also see in other places in Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq where they have lists of animals and they list amongst the domesticated animals camels. Oh, okay. There's love poetry where gods are given their lovers, now this sounds weird, camel's milk and camel's cheese as a gift to their beloved wow that, that is romantic you know you wouldn't think today you'd give a, a, for valentine's here's some camel's milk and camel's yeah. cheese but they did value different things at different times yeah but, but what that shows is 
is that there were clearly domesticated camels from that period because you're mm. not exactly going to be running around after a wild camel getting its milk or that. And you're not going to exactly be listing wild camels in your animal lists and have cylinder seeds. You see, when you put the pieces together, it sort of... These little things tend to just pull the rug right out from under these yeah. these uh, arguments against against the Bible. I mean, they don't prove the Bible, but they just kind of remove those as yeah. arguments. Like, you just can't even really bring up the camel argument today. Yeah. It just doesn't hold yeah. any weight yeah. for somebody who seriously considers it. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, as uh, just uh, one quick point is we mentioned geography. Geography is important in the Bible. Mm. The Bible mentions mm. this, this event happened in this place at this time. And it lists cities. And especially in Genesis, some of the important cities are Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham and Sarah came from. Ur of the Chaldees is a historical place in southern Iraq. Mm -hmm. You also have the city of Shechem in central Israel. Oh, Shechem yeah. is a historical site. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem mm -hmm. exists to this day. Beersheba is a historical site. You have all of these different places which have been proven to be historical places that that exist today or can be or did once exist because they found the ruins mm. now some of the places may not have been discovered yet but like i said there's a lot of places that have just simply not been excavated mm. so wow we, we when you put all the pieces together like i said it would be nice to find something saying i abraham the hebrew was here with my wife sarah and so on yeah, so or, forth. or to find the ark you yeah. know <laughs> noah's ark yeah yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, like that, but. yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, wow, interesting. So, well, the, these are these are fascinating things. We probably don't have time to go into another topic, but uh, I mean, I've learned a lot through this, and um, I think uh, you know, there's a lot of research that goes goes into this, and it, it really does fill in the um, uh, the, the stories that you were talking about, fill in the background, and really helps us to understand the nuances of the story. Yeah. You know, like you said, some of the reactions and some of the customs we're scratching our heads at, and then we go back and look in history, and it, it all kind of starts to make sense when we understand the period. And as a byproduct, what we get from that is it places those stories right in the period. These weren't something that were written many hundreds or a thousand years later. Yeah. And so th this is this is great. Uh, there is indirect evidence for the patriarchs. And uh, next week we want to. I, I mean, honestly, the the patriarchs is a tough tough thing because um, you know because of the the manner of their nomadic lifestyle and things. But uh, next week we're going to talk about a, a really exciting topic of the exodus you know movies have been made about the exodus and uh are there chariot wheels down at the bottom of the red sea and you know we're <laughs> going to talk about some of those things what what actual evidence is there for the exodus i think you're going to be surprised um at, at the the things that um we'll, we'll hear about so i invite you to stay with us uh tune back in next week be sure to uh leave any questions or comments that you have uh, as I said, below the video, um, Tom will try to address those. Tom, yeah. I'm going to throw those off to you. They're, they're all yours. Well, well, <laughs> you know? well, well, You're well, stuck I, with those. Well, I hope to be able to answer them. They'll do feel free. You know, I don't always, like I said, we haven't, there's not an answer for, for everything. Right. But I will try my best. So yeah, feel free. Legitimate questions. Uh, we're happy to deal with those. And uh, Tom, you have a YouTube channel. Yeah. 
can you tell us about that? Yeah, okay. Well, I have recently started a YouTube channel now. It's only small. I've only just started, but it's called Gospel and Spade. So if you put that in the mm. YouTube search engine, it will, should bring it up. And my intent with the channel at the moment is to make short little videos, at the moment anyway, that highlight important Old Testament artifacts. So, for example, the one I just released yesterday on Friday, at the moment I'm releasing a video every Friday. The, yesterday, the artifact I picked was the Lackish Relief. And so I, you can you say, well, what's the Lackish Relief? Well, I can't go into details, but you can click on that link and see. Hmm. And there's, they're only about, like, the maximum length is about three minutes a pop. So I'm trying to keep them short and concise because I know okay. people are busy, but give you the pertinent information. And so every week on Friday, I'm planning to do that. Lord willing, in the future, I'm hoping to, say, do the same with important New Testament artifacts and then do longer series, maybe dealing with, like, uh, important... Old Testament characters like, say, King Hezekiah or, or Pontius Pilate or in the New Testament. So, like I said, I, it's only new. It's only certain. If you go on and you enjoy what you see and you're interested, please, 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 it does help a lot. Leave, subscribe, leave a like, put comments. I will try to answer if I can and help to spread the word. And so, like I said, go to Gospel and Spade and it should pop up. So. I appreciate that. Okay, and you say it's a new channel, but it but it is growing, right? Yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah. grown quite rapidly. Yeah. just just recently here, and we're, we are we will share the um, the link for that yeah. uh, here on Facebook um, um, above the video, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, watch for that. Click on it and watch these. You know, if you're into history, uh, or even if you're wondering about um, uh, what kind of evidence is there for the Bible. Um, Tom is a great resource for this and his YouTube channel I think will be really helpful for you. I'm actually looking forward to, to having Tom back frequently. There, there's so much to talk about. We can't possibly, you know, cover everything in a short amount of time. So, but we're going to give time to this. I think it's an important topic and there are a lot of questions out there, Tom, about the Bible, um, and just what evidence do we have? And, uh, we'll, we'll keep making the point over and over. Our faith does not, um, depend on, historically proving um the events you know we, we can we we can prove places and names and things like that but we can't prove the yeah. significance of these events exactly. um and and christianity at, at the end of the day really is a matter of faith mm -hmm. um it's a matter of trusting god's word why because god said it and uh, as you said the bible does tend to be self authenticating self-validating when you read the bible you you get a sense that this is god's word and it speaks to your heart and it's just wonderful to to come along then alongside that with this historical evidence and maybe fill in some of the gaps so all right well we're looking forward to um next week's topic of the exodus don't miss it uh thanks for being with us thank you tom thank we'll see you next week thank you for having me Oh